Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to come together and lift our voices with one another to express, first of all, our love and appreciation of who you are and all you have done for us, but also to use this opportunity to express our love for one another as we are all co-heirs with Christ, sharing not only in his blessings, but in his glory. What an amazing thing. And now teach us today, um, open the scripture to us, Give us listening and willing hearts, and may the spirit who inspired its writing inspire its reception. And now uh, be with the speaker and the hearer, we pray, uh, that we might understand and grow and be edified by your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Romans 8, 18. There's been a powerful series of earthquakes that have hit uh, Turkey, Syria in the recent weeks. Uh, when I first heard of it, I thought it was bad because uh, the news that I first got was that there was as many as 2,300 people that were killed. But it turns out it's left millions of people injured, displaced, and in need of aid. So about two weeks ago, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake killed nearly 45,000 people in uh, the, those two countries. Um, earlier this week, there was a, another 6.5, and it was followed closely by a 5.8 magnitude, magnitude tremor. Uh, at least three more people were killed, and 2,000 or 200 were left injured. This first earthquake marked the worst one that Turkey has had since 1939, and it has been followed by, get this, 6,000 aftershocks. Um, the international community, of course, has been um, mobilized to send aid and support and address the urgent humanitarian needs. And local rescue teams are still digging out, trying to find survivors and to clean up the devastation that's caused by the earthquake. Now, admittedly, I write my sermon kind of midweek, but this is as recent as I could find. And that was on Thursday, an online news article said, in the past 24 hours, Turkey has had six quakes of a magnitude four or above, 45 quakes between 3.0 and 4.0, 249 quakes between 2.0 and 3.0. There have been 195 below the magnitude two, which people don't normally feel. Now you hear about such devastation and you think about 45 thousand people being killed in an earthquake and what's the response that you have what's your visceral response you, you don't even know what to say you just groan inside when when you hear about stuff like that and and you wonder well well what can we do people groan for a lot of different reasons people groan when their stomach expands to fill space that was previously occupied by other internal organs you know, we, we groan if the baby cries for hours and hours. We sigh over smaller things, but we groan when there's physical or mental anguish that leaves us just not knowing the words to say. Typically, we groan over our personal sorrows, but sometimes we groan over things that happen in the world, and we are left to, to conclude that this world is not what it was supposed to be, and it is not what it will one day be when Jesus comes and inaugurates a new kingdom, a new nation. But that's not here yet, at least not fully. And so we, we groan about some of the conditions of the world. We, 
We groan when we read about children starving in some places while crops are left to rot in the field, unharvested in, in other places. We, we groan when flawed governments and economies only serve to increase human sufferings. We, we groan when earthquakes shatter buildings and multitudes perish like they did in Turkey. We, we groan when the world seems like it's, it's gone mad and that violence and terror reigns. Admittedly, groaning is a curious thing to consider, a cu curious term to think about. And we think of it as expressing this, this anguish or a pain which can't be articulated, a complaint that we have inside. You know, we all groan from time to time. We, we groan about stuff that we don't know what to, to do about. You know, I've heard my dogs groan when they don't like what I'm asking them to do. <laughs> that reminds me, my wife asked me if I'd seen the dog bowl. I didn't even know he did. <laughs> and, so we gro and so we groan over bad dad jokes, right? <laughs> We groan about the misery of our fallen bodies in, in this fallen world. Ray Steadman wrote this. He says, our lives consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and in the lives of those we love. We also groan because we see possibilities that are not being captured or employed. And then we groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives. We would love to see something else happening. It's recorded that as he drew near the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus groaned in his spirit because he was so burdened by the ravages of sin um, that sin had made in a believing family. He groaned even though he knew that he would soon raise Lazarus from the dead. So we groan in our spirits. We groan in disappointment, in bereavement, in sorrow. We groan physically in our pain and our limitations. Life consists of a great deal of groaning. Let's look at the text before us today, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been, here's the first time, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait e eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. <clears throat> now, we've just concluded this talk about our adoption, and it's much more than just being invited into a family. As wonderful as that is, adoption in the Bible is talking about being placed in a privileged position, an honored position, as the father's heir. It is adult adoption. It is to a prestigious position as, as heirs of God 
as co-heirs or joint heirs, joint inheritors with Jesus Christ. All that the Father gives to the Son, He is now sharing with those who are brought to faith through the Son. Now, Paul considers once more, as he has before, these many tribulations, the hardships that we face, the pain, the suffering that we go through in this life, this veil of tears that we, that we walk through. And he is reminding us that this is not purposeless. This is not random. I think that probably because we watch too much television, we become anesthetized, we become dull to the pain, the suffering of, of people around us. We see so many scenes, real and pretend, of violence um, that it just leaves us jaded to all of the, the real violence in the world. We, 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 we see so much hostility. We see so much suffering, so much blood spill. We see death all around us. And so we become indifferent to it and we, when we see it for real life in other people. And maybe it's not so much for us as Americans living in this century, in this time, in this place, but in other places and in other times, Christians have particularly suffered for their faith. They suffer at the hands of unbelieving men, and they suffer specific targets of the demonic influences. So that's what Paul is concerned about as he sets this passage before us. He's contrasting for us the sufferings, the pains, the frustrations that we feel in this life now, and he's putting it against the joy, the glory that waits for us in the future, which God has prepared. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's a great difference that he's making here between this present degree of suffering and this future expressed blessedness which God has appointed for his people. And he's saying that the difference is so immense, there's, it's almost impossible to describe how different it is. Our, our language falls short in comparing the glory that we are looking forward to. Now, notice that Paul is considering the sufferings specifically of this present time. In other words, the sufferings are real. They're they're not just an illusion, and he understood that. Paul was a man who lived through a lot of sufferings. He was one of the most persecuted and most abused men that has ever graced this fallen planet. And he begins verse 18 with a familiar word, I consider, we've run into this several times in Romans, logizomai, I reckon, reckon so. To, to consider, to reckon means to to analytically look at the evidence and to come carefully to a conclusion. You look at the evidence, you weigh the evidence, and you come, you reckon, you consider what this leads us to. And he says, I consider, I think about, I reckon that the suffering that we go to is nothing compared to the glory that awaits for us. And we've seen that in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, when he says this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So no matter what we have to go through now, no matter what we presently endure, no matter what our brothers in Christ around the world are enduring, the total sum of that unpleasantness is not worth comparing, he says, to this weight of glory which is coming for us. You. 
you might be able to compare a thimble full of water to the ocean, but you would not be able to compare by that analogy the amount of glory that we will receive compared to the sufferings that we now endure. Now, let's be honest, because isn't that what every religion says? You know, that there's going to be pie in the sky by and by. Doesn't every religion say, keep on suffering because it's going to get better in the end? And um, it, we, we're sustained by some sort of uh, future promise that uh, you should endure your oppression, your oppression and oppressors now because uh, when you die, it's all going to be better. So what differentiates Christianity making a very similar promise, right? The endure your suffering now because it's not anything compared to the glory that awaits you. What gives that any more credibility than what every other religion promises? More to the point, what does that mean anyway, that there's glory that awaits us? What's that glory going to be like? Well, we know from other passages in Scripture um, that the universe is going to be transformed, Revelations 21. We know that we will have um, bodies much like Christ's glorified body, uh, Philippians chapter 3. Well, those are thrilling truths and how marvelous they are, but there's got to be something more to this concept of glory that awaits us that, than just that. You know, specifically, what is the promise of this coming glory? Probably the best sermon or that I've ever read on the subject of glory was one that C.S. Lewis preached to the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford on June 8, 1941, and he gave a really eloquent speech about glory, and it was called the weight of glory because that's the term. The term for glory is the same term in Hebrew as, as weight. God has mass. He has weight, the weight of glory. And in this uh, sermon, Lewis has five conclusions that, that Scripture promises uh, us. And the one, first one is that we shall be with Christ. And second, that we shall be like Christ. Third, that we shall have glory. That's the subject for us here. Um, that we shall be feasted is number four. Number five is that we shall have some official position in the universe. And then in speculating what that glory would be like, he turns to Matthew chapter 13 when he says something about the glory that we will possess has to do with us shining like the sun. So there's a, there's a, a radiance that, that has to do with, with the glory that we will have. And then Lewis concludes by saying, Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary, in voluntary obedience as the inanimate cre creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. For you must not think that I'm putting forward any heathen fancy of being absorbed into nature. Nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebulae have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. Nature is only the image, the symbol, and in the symbol, Scripture invites me to use. We are summoned to pass through nature, beyond nature, to that splendor which she only reflects. So when we look at the Scripture here, we see that the Scripture promises us a, a life that is beyond our imagination, but we need to pick our eyes up off the dirt and look up towards heaven to begin to see it. There's just simply no comparison between the pain that we endure and the pleasure 
of the glory that shall yet be revealed. Now, the, the first thing that the Bible tells us about this glory, whatever this glory is, is that we long for it primarily because we used to enjoy it. And that I don't mean individually. You didn't pre-exist in heaven before you got here. I'm not talking about the pre-existence. I'm talking about when God made man, he made him with some aspect of glory. He was clothed in some way with glory. He, uh, man, Adam, was created in the image of God, the imag O'Day. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that man at the beginning had a kind of glory. He was like God in that he may even have been clothed with the splendor of God like a garment. But, of course, we see nothing like that today because man is radically diminished or disgraced in the way he used to reflect the glory of God and the, the, the glory of the fallen being. Now, man, when he was created, was a, was a magnificent physical specimen. Um, Adam and Eve were, were the height, the, the glory of creation. Uh, they excelled in, in, in the created order in, in every respect. But when they sinned, man fell first physically. He wasn't created to die, and yet death has come into the world. Uh, God said, you were made from dust, to dust you shall return. Now, secondly, when man sinned, um, prior to his sin, he was, he was a beautiful soul, the most beautiful soul of creation. He had a sense, certain nobility about him that transcends you know, anything that we can fathom. But once Adam sinned, that beautiful soul was tarnished, and man began to lie and to cheat and to blame others for their own failings. But, of course, most significantly, the ruination that took place in the fall had to do mostly with our spirit. Uh, uh, the spirit of Adam and Eve once enjoyed this perfect communion with God. We are told that they walked in God's presence in the garden. And yet after the fall, they no longer sought God out. They hid from him. And the first encounter that they had consequent to the fall was one of judgment. Now, parenthetically, I'm not saying that man is neatly divided into three parts, body, soul, and spirit. I'm just using that as a figure of speech to illustrate how thoroughly we have fallen from the state of glory that we once enjoyed. And that's why I think, first of all, that we long for the glory so much that we once had that. There's this, this vestigial remembrance of the glory that we once had. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So when man fell, of course, we know from looking at Genesis that God cursed man, he cursed woman, he cursed Satan, but God also cursed creation. At this present time, the whole creation is subjected to futility, which is a consequence of man's fall, and not by choice. We're told that creation has been subjected to this futility unwillingly, God has subjected it to futility as part of the curse that followed the fall. 
this is quite obvious, it almost goes without saying, that the world today is filled with pain and suffering. And people say, well, if God is good, why is there pain and suffering? It is precisely because God is good that he's not willing to wink at sin. It is a consequence of sin that God has subjected creation, the world, to the fall because God will not tolerate evil. He's subjected it because of our sin. Now, in like manner, the goal of Christ's redemption is not limited to redeeming you personally. It involves the redemption of fallen creation. The entire creation will, <clears throat> will cease its current mourning, its groaning, um, that is because it's been delivered into this bondage of decay. And the created world suffers because of the sin of man. The whole creation looks and with great anticipation towards the revealing of the adoption of us, God's redeemed. Verse 22 says, we know that the whole world groans and labors with birth pangs until now. So again, here's this metaphor that describes something that, that we, we get a good grip on. Here is this, <clears throat> this woman, she's in labor about to deliver and she's in great agony, excruciating pain. She cries, she groans. I have been told that that is a very painful experience, almost as painful as a man cold. So I, <laughs> I want you to know, women, that we sympathize with your pain. <laughs> All right. So Paul is saying that the whole creation is like that. It is groaning in pain, but it is pain that is looking with anticipation towards what is beyond. So the woman groans, she moans in the pain of childbirth, but it is short-lived because of the joy of holding that child that, that follows when the baby is born. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And we look back at verse 23. It talks about our adoption. Our adoption, which we talked about last week, includes our redemption of our physical bodies. See, that's an important thing. You know, we have been told, if you, any funeral that you've been to, um, the preacher always says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's from 2 Corinthians 5, 8. That's true. When your physical body dies, you immediately go to be in the presence of the Lord in spirit. But that is not our complete destiny. We were not made to be spirit beings who inhabit this machine, this, this body, which is then discarded and we get to go live on some ethereal plane floating from cloud to cloud, playing our harps. And how long is that going to be interesting, honestly, you know? <laughs> we are not ghosts or spirits which temporarily inhabit our bodies, which are just an appendage for the soul. The body is not just simply a machine that the soul, the spirit uses for its purposes while we're here on earth. The body is you. Your spirit and your body are what make you human. Yes, we are spirit beings. We are also physical beings. We are incomplete one without the other. 
That's why our redemption includes the resurrection of the body, because we are not complete until we are human in spirit and body. So that being the case, your body is you. If you were young and active and well-coordinated in your body, then you are young and active and well-coordinated. And if your body is feeble and old and sick, you are feeble and old and sick. Welcome to the real world. The reality is that we are all awaiting our adoption which includes the redemption, the resurrection of our physical bodies. We're looking forward to that. And the things that you lose with old age will be restored at our resurrection. Further, we're told that this waiting is both eager, verse 23, and patient, verse 25. So we wait for the redemption of our body as part of this larger picture of redemption in, in every sphere. And we talk about how we were saved, and you could say, when were you saved? And there's a number of possible answers. I was saved before the, found, before the creation of the world. I was saved at the cross of Calvary. I was saved, oh, you know what? I was saved exactly 50 years ago, at just before Easter. Oh, it just occurred to me. At any rate, moving right along. <laughs> I was saved 50 years ago, but also I am saved. My salvation is secure. It is guaranteed. But in a sense, I will be saved. My salvation is complete when? When Christ returns, not when I go to heaven to be with him, when Christ returns and my physical body is resurrected and rejoined to my spirit being, then I will be fully saved. So we have this hope that is partly fulfilled. I have been saved, I am saved, but I'm still looking forward to the completion of my salvation when Christ returns. And so we await this redemption with eager expectation and calm assurance. And the same power that resurrected Jesus back to life from the grave is that power which will be demonstrated, employed, used in us with our redemption. And you look back at right at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 4, when he's talking about the power of resurrection in Christ. That's the power that resurrects us. Let's move on. Verse 26. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here Paul mentions a specific form of help. He specifically talks about help that the Holy Spirit gives us when we pray. Now, we usually fail in our praying because, first of all, we don't know how to pray. We pray hastily, and we run through our list of the needs of our friends and family. And we pray presumptuously. We already know what we want to do, and we just ask God to bless the plans we've already made. Um, we pray presumptuously because we only add to the end of our prayers right before the obligatory amen, 
we add, may your will be done. But that's not what we mean. We, what we really mean is, according to my will, let it be done. You use your power and make it happen. We pray often for our own selfish pleasures, our own selfish concerns. We very infrequently are praying for our own holiness, James 4, chapter 3. And I think, honestly, we don't know how to pray because we're afraid to pray, because we're afraid to ask God for something that he might say no, and that would crush us. Now, as important as all that is, it has nothing to do with the text in front of us because the text does not say we don't know how to pray. It says, if you look at the ESV, it follows the Greek, it says you don't know what to pray. Someone is deliberately asking, what should I pray? And the answer, the answer is times we just, we don't know the answer to that question. We don't, we don't know what to pray. Uh, we don't know what to pray that is in accordance with God's will, and we don't know how to find out. And so we don't pray what we should pray for. True enough, we don't know how to pray. We don't know if we should pray confidently, rushing to the throne of God and making our requests known, claiming our things by faith, or whether we should pray tentatively, always adding to the end of our prayers, if it be your will. Now, Paul uses a word here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit prays for us. He intercedes for us. There's this intercession. Verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes with groans that words cannot express. An intercessor is someone who pleads your case for you. So the meaning here is that the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, comes alongside you to help you shoulder the burden by pleading your case before God when you don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit does. And he prays for us, verse 27. Um, he know, God knows our hearts and minds. He knows the minds of the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit prays for us, he is correct and he is wise and he prays according to God's plan. Now, none of this is of course, meant to suggest that since the Holy Spirit is your intercessor, you don't need to pray because the word here says he helps us in our prayer. He doesn't just do it for us. I'm thinking if he knows what to pray for and I don't, just let him do it. You know, go off and pray for me. But here we have this responsibility to, to pray. The apostle says he helps us in our weakness. He does not eliminate our need to pray regularly and fervently. So what about this word groan? It occurs several times in our text here, uh, groan or groaning. It occurs three times just in the text that's before us today, verses 20 through to 27. And if you'll notice, there's a deliberate planned progression of who's groaning and what they're groaning about. The first occurrence here has to do with the groaning of inanimate creation. Paul says all of creation, the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Um, the second instance is, is that we ourselves groan, uh, verse 23, um, not only so, but we ourselves, who? We who are the, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the redeemed, not just people in general. We Christians also groan 
in ourselves. And the third occurrence is, uh, uh, I can't find the verse, but the third one is the Holy Spirit groans. He, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans. So there's this meaningful progression that goes from inanimate nature groaning first to us, the redeemed, groaning to third, the third person of the Godhead who is groaning. It is a very bold, obvious progression, this groaning. But what does it mean? Um, obviously, when the Holy Spirit groans, it does not mean that he doesn't know what to say or that he's inarticulate. Um, the idea here is that there's this heavy burden and the, the groan is the appropriate response of one bearing that heavy burden. Have you ever been asked to help a friend move his hot tub or his piano? <laughs> now, let, I don't know, let's, let's choose one, a piano. So what is more expressive of the feeling that you have as you stagger under the weight since there's only two of you picking up a grand piano? It is. Is it more expressive that there is an inarticulate, unutterable groan or someone who's just over there chattering away, you know, talking about every little thing, you know, oh, this piano is heavy. Don't you think the piano is heavy? Certainly, we should have considered that, you know, and, and have you noticed how awkward a piano is with moving? We should have probably hired a professional piano mover to help us with this. My, we should have spent the money, would have been better off if somebody else was helping us. Don't you think this is heavy? Don't you think that this shouldn't, and, and you think, you know what, why don't you just shut up and pick up, you know? <laughs> but which one of those things expresses better the emotion of the moment? A lot of chattery words or just simply the groan. So here we are told that the Holy Spirit groans for us too. He shares this longing anticipation. Who better knows the pain that we suffer now and the glory that awaits for us than him? Who better knows the suffering that we endure now? And yet he intercedes with us. He is told, we are told, with groans that words cannot express. The word here is alaletios. It means unutterable unuttered, unspoken, or not verbalized. Now, I have heard this verse often being used as an, uh, a proof text on why we should speak in tongues when we pray, because it doesn't have to be a language. It doesn't have to make sense because it's groanings too deep for words. That's not what the text says. By the way, I believe in speaking in tongues, and I believe in prayer language. I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying this is not the text that proves it. The better text would be chapters 12 through 14 of, of 1 Corinthians. This passage specifically refers to the Holy Spirit's intercession for us in groans not expressed by words. He groans in, in utterances not expressed with words. But what a tremendous source of comfort that is for us a sense of encouragement when we face trials, when we don't know how to pray and we don't know what to pray, then even if we don't know what God's perfect will is or God's best choice for me or whatever we want God to reveal to us, we don't know, but the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us as believers does know 
He knows what we need. He knows what is according to God's will, and he expresses those in a way that is unuttered by words, but God gets it and God understands. And he intercedes for us, and it is perfectly matched to the will of God. How do I know that? Verse 27 says that. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now, isn't it amazing that God has placed his Spirit in us and that God is continually searching for opportunities to bless us and he has given us his Holy Spirit not as a spy who rats us out every time we make a mistake, not as an accuser who says, you know better than that. You call yourself a Christian and you behave like that. And yet, he is given to us as a blessing and continually reminds us of our nature with Christ and our inheritance with him. He is himself the deposit, the down payment, the earnest money that God has given, has placed within us, which is the promise that he'll finish what he started to do. You don't need an accuser, you have one, and it's not the, the Holy Spirit. And isn't it a, beyond amazing that to think that any prayer that we initiate is imperfect and as flawed and as problematic as it is, you don't have to worry that you won't pray the right thing. You pray according to as your heart moves you, and the Holy Spirit will perfect the improper prayer and intercede for you and present it to God in a way that is in accordance with the will of God. He automatically does that. 1 John 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that, he, that we have what we asked of him. We groan over tragedies in life. We groan over those things well beyond our control. We groan over tragedies like the earthquake in Turkey. We, we groan over the fact that we fully recognize the remaining sin in us that we still struggle with. We groan that our bodies, as they age, they, we lose abilities. We groan, as does all creation, that there is this decaying that has happened as a consequence of the sin of man. We groan for the redemption of our bodies. We groan for the restoration of creation. But we groan with the sure expectation that one day Christ will restore us restore our bodies, restore the creation, restore our rule over it, not just like it was before the fall, but infinitely better than we could imagine it being. By the way, if you're still wondering what you can do besides groaning over the situation in Turkey, our church is sending money to a missionary that we have there in Turkey, so if you'd like to designate your givings for that, um, you can do more than groan, you can help with your wallets. And let's close in prayer. Our Father God, more than anything, we want to pause right here to say thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us. Thank you that we have an encourager 
and thank you that we have an intercessor. Thank you that he knows fully our frustrations, our disappointments, our discouragements, our failings, but he knows more than the suffering that we endure now, the glory that awaits us. And as he prays for us and helps us to pray, may we pray too in confidence of your love and your blessing. May we groan for the restoration that happens when Christ returns. Thank you for your word, God, and now cause it to ruminate in our hearts through this week, we pray. In the name of Jesus, your son, amen.